Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, welcome to First Move. It is great to be with you, as always, this Monday. And we begin in Japan, a nation that remains in a state of mourning and continued disbelief after the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. His wake took place today in Tokyo with a funeral service set for Tuesday. Following the shooting, Abe's political party also won a landslide election victory this weekend. We'll be discussing his life's work and what this election result might mean for his economic and political legacy with Takinianami, the CEO of beveraging giant Suntory Holdings, who served as Abe's senior economic advisor. And there's much more to discuss in Asia, too. Sri Lanka's president and prime minister agreeing to resign after a citizen revolt amid soaring food and energy prices. That economic crisis exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Chinese tech stocks have also tumbled in Hong Kong, Beijing imposing fresh fines on Alibaba and Tencent for antitrust violations. Investors beware, hopes that China was easing its regulatory crackdown on tech may be premature. And U.S. technology stocks also losing altitude as well. Twitter shares set to tumble after Elon Musk torched his $44 billion takeover bid. Not a surprise, I think, given Musk's recent messaging, but a move not entirely priced into Twitter's stock. As you can see, they're down some 6% plus pre-market. And it's a softer picture overall on Wall Street. After solid gains last week for the S&P and the Nasdaq, the best week for tech, in fact, this year. Europe also lower on renewed recession fears. Russia is shutting the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline for 10 days worth of repairs. But at what rate will those gas shipments resume? A huge question for Europe's increasingly hard hit manufacturing base. There's plenty to discuss, as always, on the show today. Let's begin, though, in Japan at the Zojoji Temple in Tokyo Shiba Park, where the wake for former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe took place earlier today. Kung La joins us now. Good to be with you. A private wake, I believe, for friends and family today ahead of tomorrow's funeral. Just talk us through how the the, uh, country plans to remember him and honour him. Uh, You're exactly right, Julia. A private family wake uh, and this is also going to be the, 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 the way that the funeral is going to be held. It's going to be reserved for family and for close dignitaries of the former prime minister and uh, really there to support his widow. Um, the, the public, though, was able to pay their respects at the temple right behind me. We saw you know, you know, a stream of people, people from around the city coming to pay their respects, a lot of them carrying flowers. There was a table set up with a a, a large photo of the former prime minister, people were able to pause, they were able to reflect, uh, drop a flower and drop a prayer and really start to begin to process the shock and the horror in a country that is completely unused to gun crimes, especially when it concerns their high-profile political leaders. As far as the investigation, police are zeroing in more on the timeline and the motivation of 41-year-old Tetsuya Yamagami. He's the person who is in custody. He is the prime suspect. 
as far as a timeline, law enforcement is telling us that he was able to build these homemade pistols by looking at videos on YouTube, that he planned all of this and that he even prepared for it by heading into mountainous areas and practicing firing these homemade guns. As far as the motivation, um, he had told law enforcement that he was angry. We did not know exactly which group he was angry at. Law enforcement would not confirm that to CNN. But we are now hearing in a press conference held by the Japan branch of the Unification Church that the church believes that they probably are the group. They said that they were very confused because the suspect was not a member, that Abe did not have connections to them. They did confirm, though, that the suspect's mother was a member and that they had become aware that she had gone bankrupt in 2002, Julia. So all of this little piece is starting to come together as the country is becoming, is starting to gather together to try to remember this leader. Julia? Yes. The morning process and the investigation continues. Kungla, great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us there from Tokyo. Now, from Japan to China, where a peaceful protest was quashed by violent means, authorities clashing with demonstrators who were demanding their life savings back from banks in the city of Zhengzhou. Deposits worth millions of dollars have been frozen since April. Selena Wang joins us now. Selena, these were people that were protesting because, as I mentioned there, they feared that their life savings were lost in some of these rural banks. And notice, and we can show some of the pictures, I believe, are people waving, waving national flags. There's the message, I think, being that this wasn't about the, the central government, this is about local government. But what's the response been to, to, the, to the crackdown? Well, Julie, we've reached out to the local authorities, no response yet. But what we saw on Sunday, that was one of the largest protests seen in China since the start of the pandemic. And as you say, it is part of this months long dispute that has sparked nationwide outrage. Chinese authorities, you'll see in those pictures on Sunday, they violently suppressed a large scale peaceful protest by people who were demanding that authorities give them access to their life savings that are currently frozen in several banks. So since April, several small banks in China central Hunan province have frozen deposits impacting as many as 400,000 banking customers. That is according to state media. Now, it is rare to see protests in authoritarian China, but in the past two months, there have been multiple. These depositors are desperate. This threatens the very livelihood of people in an economy that's already been battered by COVID lockdowns. I have spoken to migrant workers and business people whose decades of hard-earned money are in the banks, and they say they are struggling to survive now. And you see that video, the police violently quashing these protesters. Security guards in some of those videos, they are dragging the protesters down the stairs. Witnesses tell CNN that they were beating anyone who resisted, including women, and the elderly. In fact, I spoke to a man who was there. He said he was also dragged violently from the crowd. He says his entire family's life savings is in one of the banks. He's in fact traveled to Hunan several times to protest because of the anguish and the terrifying fear that his family's future is destroyed if he cannot get access to those deposits. And from those videos you saw from those clashes on Sunday, some of those protesters were left injured, bloodied, and bruised. 
Depositors also tell me that authorities have been trying to suppress them for a while now. Many have said local officials abused the COVID health app to prevent them from traveling to protest. In fact, several local officials have since been punished after the health code allegation sparked nationwide backlash because people just saw it as a very blatant example of COVID controls being used for political control. So the latest is that police are investigating the banks and have blamed fraudulent management practices for the crisis. But experts worry that this is really just the tip of the iceberg with much bigger financial problems to come in other provinces because of skyrocketing local government debt that's been made worse by economic damage from the pandemic. And of course, this social unrest comes at a politically sensitive time from the Communist Party. We are just months away from the party Congress when Xi Jinping is expected to seek an unprecedented third term, Julia. Yes, politically incredibly sensitive time. And to your point as well, as we've talked about on the show before, uh, the economic restrictions that we're seeing and their credit conditions, particularly for small businesses, all playing into this as well as far as the banks are concerned. We'll continue to watch it. Selena, thank you. Okay, next up, an extraordinary palatial sing-along in Sri Lanka. Incredible scenes inside the presidential mansion where protesters stormed over the weekend. They took control of the official residence of the president and set fire to the prime minister's home, posing for pictures in what appeared to be a presidential pool party. Take a look at that. They planned to remain there until the president and prime minister resign over an economic crisis, which has crippled the country. And there's a chance they may have got their wish as Will Ripley joins us. Well, I mean, we can sort of make lighthearted of a presidential pool party, but I mean, these people were desperate. Astonishing events over the weekend, but unsurprising in light of, of the challenges that ordinary people face and the, the disparity in living standards, I think, very clear there for the people to see, too. And that is absolutely the bottom line, Julia. Yes, you know, you see these images. They're swimming in the presidential pool. They're working out in the gym. But this was a crowd of more than 100,000 people who had gathered outside the president's house because... They are furious. They're furious after the the worst financial crisis that Sri Lanka has seen since World War II. More than 70 years uh, has left them unable to get the basics of of survival, food, fuel, even access to cash from the banks, medicine. None of it right now is available or at least very, very difficult to come by in Sri Lanka. And people are growing desperate. And yet you have the ruling elite uh, and, of course, President Rajapaska, kind of the symbol of that, the prime minister, uh, Wickremesinghe as well. You know, these two men living in absolute posh luxury and the crowds are struggling just to feed their families and to give medicine to their sick loved ones. And so people are angry. They stormed in there. And this is a way for them to let off some steam. Certainly, there was no violent suppression, unlike what we saw in China with the bank protests. Uh, it has been peaceful, uh, peaceful, at least in terms of the, the government response. They've been on television asking the protesters to respectfully disperse uh, because the president has said that he will resign on Wednesday. The prime minister says he's going to resign as soon as a new all-party government is formed. That, uh, if the prime minister were to step down, the speaker of parliament would be the acting president for the next uh, 30 days maximum, and the parliament would elect a new president. So there's still a lot here that could go wrong with this, because if the president doesn't resign as he said he would, if the prime minister sticks around longer, or if the new leadership, Julia, uh, doesn't, uh, you know, start to do something to help people uh, get uh, have better daily conditions, 
these types of unrest, these protests, these violent could continue. I mean, the prime minister's residence being set on fire. He wasn't there. His family wasn't there. They've been taken to a secure location. Uh, but there have been people injured in these demonstrations. Uh, there have been violent clashes. And of course, when you have that many people, there's always a risk. There's always a danger uh, that something could go horribly wrong. So we have to watch really closely in the coming days, Julia, to see what's going to happen. Uh, whether or not the protesters who continue to, by the way, to occupy the president's house, they say they're not going anywhere until, until the president and prime minister are officially out. Will they disperse peacefully or will further actions be taken that could escalate? the situation in Sri Lanka even further. It was what I was going to ask you, actually. I mean, the president's family has been in power for, what, the best part of two decades. I was going to ask you how the, the transfer of power even takes yes. place here. And it comes at a critical time when the country was trying to negotiate a bailout package with the International Monetary Fund. You're not doing that if there's no one to negotiate with. You're in an interim government phase. So it sort of adds to the to the yeah. challenges of the economic crisis that they, now they're going to lose time with, with negotiating that, too. A crisis that is being blamed uh, by by analysts largely on the Rajapaska dynasty, if you will, because it was up until recently, Julia, as you know, the president and prime minister were brothers and they've actually traded places in terms of being president and prime minister. So you have this Rajapaska family that has been running, you know, steering the ship for a long time now and, and is now uh, being accused of steering right into the right into uh, the ground, essentially, because uh, this current crisis is the result, they, the analysts say, of financial mismanagement, bad financial decisions. And in all fairness, we've covered the, the other crises that have hit Sri Lanka. Going back to 2019, the Easter bombings that took a huge toll on their tourism industry right as it was starting to stabilize. Then you had COVID-19, which of course shut everything down. Um, just as they were starting to come back from COVID-19, there was a cargo ship that caught fire off the coast and it spewed plastic pellets on their gorgeous beaches. Yet another blow to Sri Lanka's not only tourism industry, to the people, you know, resorts that rely on the beaches, but also to the fishing industry as well. So it has been a series of, of, of misfortune for Sri Lanka. And now you have this unrest. These are the you know people who have been suffering and struggling for a long time. And by the way, protesting for many months before they acted the way they did on Saturday, where the, where the violence really kind of boiled over, the protests really boiled over. This has been a long time coming for sure. Mm, a swift transfer of powers in the best interest of the country and the people. The question is, does it happen? Well, thank you. Well, Ripley. Yeah. Okay, from Iron Man to Terminator, Twitter shares set to tumble after Elon Musk's hasta la vista baby moment on Friday. Musk pulling his $44 billion bid for the social media giant in his ongoing battle over real-life bots. Rahel Solomon joins me now. The headbutting over bots could be over, uh, but not quite yet, because Twitter's turning around and saying, look, we're still committed to this deal and we want it at the uh, elevated, let's call it that, price that it was originally agreed at. Elon Musk, though, not sounding worried. Not at all. And this is certainly far from over. Julia, from the very beginning, this has been a spectacle with a lot of it playing out on Twitter. It appears this will end, however, in a Delaware civil courtroom. So at issue here, as you pointed out, is the number of bots or spam accounts on the site. Uh, Elon Musk apparently believing that the board has not been honest with him about that. Elon Musk's lawyer saying that Twitter is in material breach of multiple provisions. Elon Musk putting it differently on Twitter, where else saying they said I couldn't buy Twitter, then they wouldn't disclose bot info. Now they want to force me to buy Twitter in court. I think we can pull this up for you. Now they have to disclose bot info in court. 
one person not laughing, one group not laughing, Julia, is the board of Twitter. The chairman posting the Twitter board is committed to closing the transaction on the price and terms agreed upon, adding we will prevail in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Look, this is creating quite an overhang for Twitter. Dan Ives, a strategist who follows this company very closely, posting in a note this morning that for Twitter, this is a fiasco. It's a nightmare scenario outlining some of the challenges for the company now and its employees include employee turnover, morale, advertising headwinds, and of course, investor credibility around the fake bot and account issue. Shares have been on a wild ride from the very beginning of this year. Of course, tech shares in general and social media shares in general have had a very tough year. But Twitter shares started off at around 43.22 at the start of this year. They're now closer to 36.86. Look, Julia, for for people who work at Twitter, this is going to stretch into 2023. Imagine working there, this sort of playing out on Twitter, playing out on the news, really creates a lot of sort of tension and anxiety, you can imagine, for Twitter employees. But this is expected to play out supposed to be a lengthy court battle. The Delaware Court of Chancery, by the way, uh, considered one of the most sophisticated civil courts in the country in terms of these type of corporate uh, civil litigation. So unclear if the the Twitter back and forth will mean anything to the judges, but this is likely going to be uh, quite some time before we know how this all settles. Yeah, and I tell you, someone else who's not smiling, all the investors in Twitter and arguably Tesla too, because that's come under some pressure as well. I mean, he offered it $54.20. It was trading at $50.98. I was looking at it this morning when he actually made the offer. And as you pointed out, we're trading, what, around $36.80 here. So there's a significant drop off in price. Rahel, very quickly, do you think he's just angling for a lower price or do you think he's done? I mean, I think at this point, it's hard to say he's still negotiating because if, in fact, this does head to a courtroom, I don't know that it still becomes his decision, right? I mean, if, he, if he's already made an obligation to purchase it and it goes to a courtroom, it may be out of his hands. And by the way, Julia, this very same court, we have seen them enforce companies and sort of force companies to uh, go through with deals. We've seen it before. So at this point, it might be out of his hands, but uh, it's Elon Musk. You, you never really know, Julia. We'll be talking about it for, for quite some time, I'm sure. Me too. I agree with you on that point. But at the bottom of this is the bot count, and that matters to everybody here. So if it does get disclosed in court, to, to Elon Musk's point, um, it's vital knowledge that I think we'll all be interested in seeing. Rahel, great Agreed. to see you. Thank you. Yep. Rahel Solomon there. Okay, straight ahead on First Move. The CEO of Suntory Holdings joins us to assess Japan's future, driven by the legacy of Arbonomics. Plus, high-stake talks. What's to be gained from President Biden's upcoming trip to the Middle East? Ian Bremmer guides us through the geopolitics and more. Welcome back to First Move and a return to one of our top stories this hour. Japan remains in mourning following the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe last week. His wake took place today ahead of his funeral on Tuesday. On Sunday, just days after the attack, the country also went to the polls and handed Abe's party a resounding victory. Japan's leaders had been urging people to vote, denouncing the killing as an attack on democracy. And joining us now is Tak Nianami. He's a former senior economic advisor to Shinzo Abe when he was Japanese prime minister. Nianami is the CEO of Japanese beverages giant Suntory Holdings. And he joins us now from Tokyo. Tak, great to have you on the show. I, I wish it were under better circumstances. Um, an incredibly sad moment, I think, for all those who knew and, and loved Shinzo Abe. Yes, uh, the entire country, including myself, is uh, deeply shocked by this violence. 
former Prime Minister Abe has left so many significant uh, legacies, including creating a positive momentum after long years of dark period in Japan. He has remained influential even after stepping down from office, and Japan still needed him to move the remaining agenda forward. Do you think his legacy, to your point, and it's not just about economic policy, which I know you were closely involved in too, but also security policy, do you believe that legacy will continue and, and will be pushed further? Definitely. Peace and the security legislation, which uh, former Prime Minister Abe brought to us, that enabled Japan to expand its rights to ex- exercise collective self-defense without actually amending the constitution. This allowed Japan to play a more pro- proactive role in the peace and the stability of the region amid China's growing military assertiveness. So Prime Minister Kishida will leverage it um, in terms of geopolitics, in terms of geoeconomics. What we saw at the weekend, and I've already mentioned it, is what we appear to see is the LDP party now having enough of a majority to enact constitutional change should it choose to. Do do you think that that Japan is ready, whether it's the people or or the government, to to move on beyond the sort of pacifist post-war period, to your point, and and formally change the constitution now and, and beef up that security presence and presence on the global stage too? I think uh, we need to discuss furthermore as for mm. amendment of the Constitution, especially which part, because of the uh, legacy left by the former Prime Minister Abe, we don't have to amend the uh, Constitution toward the uh, self-defense because he made a great job already. So which part we should uh, amend, such as what to do with the uh, governance over the uh, government, diet, uh, what to do with the uh, um, power to be given at the time of a crisis to the prime minister. So what kind of uh, constitutional amendments we need, revision we need, that should be discussed among the general public. So we need still discussion. And the conversations will continue. Um, I want to go back to Arbonomics because there are parts of Arbonomics that, that worked, and I think Shinzo Abe himself would, would acknowledge that there were also huge challenges. Reform, in particular, is, is incredibly difficult, particularly when there are other populist or more populist leaders perhaps around the world taking easier choices and making, and making bigger promises. What do you think he would hope results from, from his loss, if there's one thing that he didn't achieve, that he would like the country on an economic basis to achieve, what do you think he hopes that, that, that the current Prime Minister will, will push more for? Definitely wage increases. Abenomics changed the, the landscape so that the people earn more in terms of the household level. So Prime Minister Kishida definitely needs to uh, inherit the, the, uh, the passion for increasing uh, wages. And in our country, to fight the inflation, which is now uh, underway, definitely uh, we have to increase uh, wages. That started from uh, uh, former Prime Minister Abe. That is a key issue for 
the, the uh, uh, Kishida administration. You know, it's fascinating because you and I have talked about wage increases in the past. And I do feel like after so much time without inflation, and this was something that, that the former prime minister really tried to create. And it's it's difficult after so long without inflation for people to understand it and to accept it. It's understandable that people are very uncomfortable at this moment, whether it's business um, or consumers. Consumers are concerned about the future. Because inflation is a gigantic power to ruin the future hopes. So I think consumers are not ready yet to accept any, you know, huge increases of prices. In the meantime, corporates so much suffered from the price increases that has come out of the supply chain challenge all over the world. So... Eight to nine percent of increase of uh, uh, cost increases uh, that is uh, hurting the bottom line of the corporate, and the corporate can't pass every cost increases to consumers yet. So we'll have the uh, serious issues because of the inflation, and to the corporate and to the consumers. But uh, the key thing is uh, corporate can't pass all the cost increases. That means corporate is unable to increase wages so easily because we corporate absorbs the difference. Mm. How do you manage that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, definitely, um, we need more jobs, quality job and a high paying job uh, so that that absorbs the uh, mobility of laborers and then that will create the momentum toward the uh, uh, increases of uh, wages. But that needs uh, the, uh, lots of investments from uh, the government as well as uh, the private sector. But mainly private sector should invest to uh, some new frontiers like uh, green innovation, uh, healthcare, and uh, DX. Those uh, will create a lot of jobs, high paying and quality jobs. That will create a positive momentum toward the wage increases. Yes, and much of that, to your earlier point, was the ambition of, of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So we hope he sees that for the country in the future. Tech, great to have you with us. And I'm sorry on behalf of the country for the country's loss. Thank you very much. Thank you, the CEO of Centauri Holdings there. Okay, coming up on First Move, from the shocking assassination of Shinzo Abe to Joe Biden's controversial trip to Saudi Arabia, Eurasia Group C and Bremer will join us next to discuss the geopolitical implications. Welcome back to First Move and a bit of a Monday malaise on Wall Street. Tech pulling back from one month highs and falling for the first time in six sessions. As you can see early on, we're down some 1% of risk off day as investors await important U.S. inflationary data later this week, as well as the kickoff to U.S. earnings season. What impact, of course, on corporates? Many fear that profit estimates for corporate America are way too high still, given the inflationary environment, the Federal Reserve's tightening path and the resulting fears of recession. Friday's solid U.S. jobs report 
support, though, not helping quiet global recessionary fears. Global bonds are softer and the safe haven U.S. dollar continues to strengthen the U.S. currency ever closer to reaching parity with the euro. The first time that's happened in some 20 years, the euro falling as European manufacturers take a hit from uncertainty over future energy supplies from Russia. That's ongoing uncertainty. Germany, in fact, posting its first monthly trade deficit in more than 30 years. Meanwhile, President Biden defending his controversial visit to Saudi Arabia this week, saying it's critical to the security of the United States. In a Washington Post op-ed, he said, we have to counter Russia's aggression, put ourselves in the best possible position to out-compete China and work for greater stability in a consequential region of the world. To do these things, we have to engage directly with countries that can impact those outcomes. Joining us now is Ian Bremer. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He's also the author of the book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World, among other books. Ian, always great to have you on the show. It's a domestic diplomatic dance, but it's the right decision in your mind. It's clearly the right decision. And let's keep in mind that Biden's the one that was uh, dragging his feet uh, for the last six months. I accept that the first country, first continent that the American president should be going to is not the Middle East, not Saudi Arabia, uh, the way that President Trump had. Uh, The Europeans matter a lot more as American allies. Uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia matter a lot more as American allies, Canada, Mexico. But, you know, he should be going to the Middle East. And if he's going to the Middle East, he should be going to Saudi Arabia, not first and foremost because of their energy production, but because they were the largest arms purchaser of the United States in the world because there's enormous amounts of intelligence cooperation and coordination between the United States and Saudi Arabia and because the Saudis are working increasingly closely behind the scenes with Israel, America's top ally in the region. So to go to the Middle East and not to go to Saudi Arabia would be crazy. And, uh, you know, yeah, he's, he's, he's taking backlash because when he was running for president, he said he was going to make Mohammed bin Salman into an international pariah. Well, it's a little hard to walk that back. And uh, and this op-ed that he wrote over the weekend is a, is a part of that dance. You can argue it was never credible at the time. And, and this proves it. We didn't need an energy crisis for it. You think this could at least be the beginnings, perhaps, of a future formal opening of diplomatic relations between the Saudis and the Israelis, which, of course, would be an extension of the, the Abraham Accord signed under Trump. I mean, that would be huge, Ian. Uh, There's already a significant and high-level engagement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis have told President Biden directly that they are, they'd like to hear what suggestions he has for uh, increasing uh, and improving the relationship uh, short of the Saudis signing the Abraham Accord. That's not going to happen on this trip. But they're absolutely willing to move in that direction. Uh, and I agree, it, it's it's obviously a positive for everyone except for, say, Iran. And that's not a particular concern of the United States right now. Mm. Um, probability that he can push the Saudis to release more oil and even convince them that Russia needs to be ousted from, from OPEC+. Plus. You're not discounting uh, the probability, possibility. On, on- on, Alpe- on OPEC Plus, no, the Russians aren't going to be kicked out. That's not going to happen. Um, on uh, the Saudis re- releasing more oil, they've said that they would. Uh, they have an extra roughly one million barrels a day of spare capacity that they can release. Um, and they don't want to go by themselves. They've been coordinating with the Emiratis and with other OPEC nations so that as the Saudis move, they're not 
it's not just the Saudis giving Biden support, but it's meant to be longer term, more strategic. And keep in mind, oil prices have been coming down over the last several weeks. There is not a shortage of oil on the market. There are market concerns that the Russian oil to uh, not just Europe, but everywhere else is going to be cut off because of a boycott. Um, that's very different from you need to actually change the supply demand equation. In fact, the bigger concerns in the marketplace over the coming months are actually the concerns about a global recession, a China slowdown, a U.S. slowdown, a European slowdown. So you could make a case that we should be in the next few months in a bearish energy market as opposed to a bullish one. The Saudis will certainly make that case. Yes. And also yeah. Biden's less desperate heading there as well, which is um, perhaps more comfortable than it might have been uh, if it had been a couple of months ago in particular, too. Um, I, I want to talk about Japan. You knew the former Prime Minister Abe well. You'd known him for over a decade, I believe. You said you'll miss him. You also called it Japan's JFK moment. Well, I, I mean, it's shocking. Uh, I mean, I was in Tokyo last week and, you know, uh, this may sound uh, like a different story, but it's the same. I mean, 80 percent of the population were wearing masks outside in 100 degree weather. Everyone takes care of each other. Even if you feel uncomfortable, you do it because you want to make sure that the community stays strong. This is so stunning for Japan. Um, uh, gun violence is virtually unheard of in that country. Last year, the entire year, one person killed with a violent uh, gun attack. That's it. Uh, and so the idea that Abe would be stumping for the upcoming elections and killed in broad daylight by a crazy person with a homemade rifle, it's hard for the Japanese to even process it. And this was the longest standing prime minister in Japanese history, uh, very popular um, internally. And this is a country that is almost a single party democracy. The Liberal Democratic Party that Abe used to run, um, you know, wins election after election after election, just as they did just yesterday. So it's it's stunning uh, for Japan. It will bring the country together. But the trauma that they will experience in the coming weeks and months as a consequence, uh, I, I think, is very hard for those outside of Japan to even process. Yeah, I, I was about to say that. And I think everybody's shocked and, and still stunned by it as well. It ties to the the broader question over security, though, and a move away from Japan's pacifist past. We just spoke to one of his economic advisors when he was the prime minister, um, Takni Anami, the, the CEO of Suntory Holdings. And he said, look, as far as constitutional change, it still needs to be discussed. We're already moving in a, a more secure, aware on the world stage direction. The question over constitutional changes is, is perhaps a separate one. Do you think it, it leads that down that path? Not necessarily, but understand that from the Japanese perspective, what Abe most wanted to do was improve relations with Russia. Uh, he didn't like the idea that Japan was surrounded by antagonists. And you've got China, North Korea and Russia, all nuclear armed states that the Russian government, that the Japanese government does not trust at all. And the Russian relationship has just completely imploded as a consequence of the Russian invasion into Ukraine. The Japanese were trying to negotiate over these contested territories in the north. They're now increasingly on a Cold War footing uh, with Russia. And the Russians have you know, said that they're changing the nature of the most important investment uh, that the Japanese have into the Sakhalin energy uh, complex. So if you're Japan and you look at North Korea, you look at China, you look at Russia, 
you feel like you are a small series of islands with a population that's shrinking, with no economic growth, surrounded by antagonists. That's a deeply uncomfortable position for Japan to be in. It makes them more interested in improving relations with South Korea. It also makes them feel like the architecture of the Quad um, right. and of the relationship with the United States is so fundamentally important for them. I was going to say um, the Quad relationship now all the more pivotal. Uh all of this very yeah. much tied to what we saw in Sri Lanka over the weekend and the war in Ukraine too exacerbating an economic crisis that already existed in Sri Lanka. And now it looks perhaps like the president, the prime minister going to leave this week. I, just, I was asking on the show earlier, what does the transition of power even look like in Sri Lanka? And of course, what does it mean for IMF negotiations as well, an extension of them? They, I think the IMF clearly understands that this is a nation in peril that doesn't have energy, that doesn't have food. Uh, they will want to provide support once a new government comes in. I, th I assume that no matter what the flavor of that government is, no matter how transitional it is, whether it's opposition-led or whether it's uh, former advisors to the president and prime minister, you will have active engagement with the IMF. But Sri Lanka is not happening in a vacuum. There are other countries around the world that are facing increasingly desperate situations for their own population because of massive inflation, because uh, interest rates are going up, they're having a hard time borrowing. A lot of them are very debt-stressed, especially after the last two-plus years of the pandemic. And now the Russian invasion makes life more, more challenging for them from a, a global supply chain perspective. So, I mean, if you think that Sri Lanka uh, is, uh, you know, it looks, looks dramatic to you, there will be other countries um, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa that are going to experience these sorts of economic stresses going forward. Even closer to home, the UK. We didn't even get to mention that, Ian. But it, it all sort of ties the political upheaval, the economic challenges, crisis in certain parts of the world. Ten years since you've been talking about G0, this sort of leadership vacuum or, or recession that we're facing. Um, it, it, you have to answer quickly because I'm going to get yelled at. But my fear is what next? Well, what next is not the United States or China, either by themselves or together, leading the world. And so it's a more fragmented series of global orders. We'll be talking about that a lot going forward, Julia. Yeah, we will. Wow, that was that was quicker than I expected. You're the best. Ian, great to chat to you. We'll reconvene. Ian Bremer, thank you, as always. Coming up after the break, the catastrophic human toll of Russia's war on Ukraine. We're at the scene of an apartment building hit by Russian weapons. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. 29 people have died in a rocket attack on an apartment building in Donetsk, Ukraine. And in Kharkiv, Russia carried out several strikes overnight. Six people lost their lives, 31 others injured. As CNN's Alex Markart has the details. It has been a very loud few hours and really few days here in Kharkiv with Russian strikes all across the city, including right here in the center. Overnight, at least three Russian strikes that woke us up in the middle of the night, those air raid sirens uh, going off. And then this morning when we were out on the streets of Kharkiv shooting a story, uh, another barrage of Russian rockets uh, across the city, uh, killing at least three people and wounding almost 
30 residents of Kharkiv. But I want to show you the location of one of those overnight strikes. Uh, this was a missile attack on a residential building at about 3.30 in the morning. This is a six-story building. You can see uh, that the strike collapsed the roof and every single floor below it. Uh, the belongings in those apartments cascading down to the street level. Uh, there's a huge crater here at the bottom uh, there where you see those city workers. There are two businesses on the ground floor of this building. The force of that blast blowing out windows on either side uh, of the street, uh, both in that business and a residential building here. And this is the second time, in fact, that we've been on this city block in the past 48 hours. Uh, there was another strike on Saturday morning just over there on a residential area. It does appear that the Russians are trying to target this area. What they are targeting, we are not sure whether they believe uh, there's some kind of Ukrainian military presence. That is unclear, but that is a reason uh, that we are not going to stay here in central Kharkiv on this block uh, for too long. But as there is this uptick on strikes here in Kharkiv, at the same time, the Russians pushing farther west into the Donbass, into the Donetsk region. In Donetsk on Saturday, there was a vicious uh, Russian missile strike on an apartment building uh, that left at least 20 dead, we now understand, according to local officials. More than two dozen people had been trapped beneath the rubble. Uh, emergency workers working feverishly to try to get them out from under that rubble. And as we brace for uh, another Russian offensive in the eastern Donbass region, when you see what's happening here, there is also a sense that Russia may soon try to renew their push uh, on Kharkiv, uh, not just uh, one of the biggest Ukrainian cities uh, closest to Russia's border, but the second biggest city in the country and therefore a major prize for Russia. Alex Marquardt, CNN in Kharkiv. And the war in Ukraine and the restriction on grain exports fueling food price inflation around the world and raising famine fears. That's especially true in North Africa and in a region still feeling the after effects of the Arab Spring. There's a risk soaring prices could lead to further unrest. CNN's David McKenzie has more. Racing to feed a nation in the closing days of Tunisia's summer harvest. Russia's cynical ploy to hold hostage more than 20 million tons of Ukrainian grain is leading to a food crisis here in Tunisia and much of North Africa. Are you worried it will have a long-term impact on Tunisia? The war has really impacted both the consumer and our agricultural productions. Right now, every country must become self-reliant. If that's not possible, things are going to get very difficult. They're scrambling to increase that production and change consumer habits. In sun-baked Tunisia, farmers grow hard wheat to make pasta and couscous. But for soft wheat, the wheat that makes bread, Tunisia gets around 60% of it from Ukraine and Russia. And an official told me that they'll never be able to make up that number here. Not in five years, not even in 10. That spells trouble, says Shukri Amnudi. We can only sell what the government gives us, he says. The baguettes are subsidized by a government heavily in debt. Tunisia can barely afford imported flour from outside of Ukraine. It's about daily survival. When the people are hungry, they rebel, he says. Here, they are just recovering from a crushing COVID pandemic and a decade of political uncertainty. The impact of the war in Ukraine could not have come at a worse time. Even retired professionals like Huria Bussad and her husband can only afford a few luxuries. The prices, all the time they are going up. And what does that mean for you and your family? Young people, they cannot marry now. 
they don't have enough money to live, they cannot have a family. <laughs> I've sold nothing today, says Nasir Tamami, absolutely nothing. This place should be jam-packed before the Eid holiday, he says, but nobody can afford meat. On the roadside, farmers like Walid are struggling to sell their sheep for Eid celebrations. The sheep don't seem to mind. Animal feed prices are doubled because of Ukraine. It's a chain reaction that's bad enough now, he says. But the effect of the war is rarely going to be felt next year. David McKenzie, CNN, Tunis. Okay, coming up here on First Move, it's time to go deep, deep into the universe and some sparkly images of space that's getting stargazers very excited indeed. Stay with us. Changing the way we see the universe, space fans are eagerly waiting to see new images from NASA's James Webb Telescope due to come out on Tuesday. A sneak peek revealed high-resolution images of a quality never seen before. CNN's Kristen Fisher reports. And liftoff. Six months after the most powerful telescope ever made launched into space, the team inside the Webb Space Telescope's flight control room is preparing to reveal what astronomers all over the world have been waiting for for decades. The telescope's first full-color images, which are expected to be light years more impressive than the test images released last month and will include the deepest image of our universe that's ever been taken. Our view of the universe is definitely going to change on July 12th. Ken Sembach runs the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, home to Webb's mission control, and he predicts the day that Webb's first images are released will be on par with the day that Galileo became the first person to ever point a telescope to the sky. There will be a universe we knew before Webb and a universe we know after Webb. I really mean that. I think our perspective will change. NASA says some of the images released on July 12th still need to be taken. Others have already been captured and are being kept secret. But NASA's leadership has gotten a sneak peek. What I have seen just moved me. Uh, as a scientist, uh, as an engineer, uh, and as a human being. A sense of awe and, uh, frankly, got emotional. But getting emotional about the telescope is something Lee Feinberg has learned to bury after working on Webb for more than two decades. The telescope's most recent brush with death took place just a few weeks ago when a micrometeoroid struck one of the telescope's massive golden mirrors, which are critical for its operation. Earlier in my career, it might have been a punch in the gut, but what I've learned about um, working on a, on a big project like this is Things are never as bad as they first seem or never as good as they first seem. He was right. The telescope survived the strike. And NASA is now on the verge of handing this $10 billion telescope over to the scientists whose research proposals have been selected for the first year of observations. It is just doing as well as we could have ever hoped, if not better. And so I think the scientists are just going to be extremely happy to use it. And we're going to be excited to see what gets, you know, what comes out of it. Kristen Fisher, CNN, Baltimore. So exciting. That's tomorrow. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN as always. And Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. 
And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.